culture. And we're really excited tonight to have Mr. Eddie Conway here with us to enlighten us a little bit about his life. This is the last event in our speaker series in Peace Studies to Black Lives Matter, Local Reflections on Civil Rights and Beyond. And we really couldn't have ended it with a more distinguished speaker. Um, so we're really excited to, to welcome Eddie Conway here to Goucher and for an evening of exchange, dialogue. I want to remind everyone that it will be respectful dialogue and we will have a microphone over there for the Q&A, which I'll be handing around. So please get my attention so we can make sure to get your question on the mic so that it's recorded. We're recording the event tonight for future audiences. And with that, I will turn it over to Peace Studies student Bernardo Vigil, who's going to be introducing Mr. Conway. Hello, and thank you for coming to this last event in the Peace Studies speaker series, Do Black Lives Matter? Local Reflections on Civil Rights and Beyond. Tonight, it is my pleasure to introduce a man who exemplifies what it is to be a leader on the, gr on the ground floor. This is a man who has dedicated his life to the pursuit of justice and the empowerment of his community in the face of near-constant repression a shining example of personal humility and growth as well as a major political role model to myself and young organizers everywhere. Marshall Eddie Conway was the Minister of Defense for the, of the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party. Mr. Conway spent 44 years behind bars in Maryland as a political prisoner and remains active with prison issues. Friend of a Friend, an organization Conway helped to found while he was incarcerated, works with young men to reduce ins uh, institutional violence through conflict resolution training. He is the author of the memoir, Martial Law, The Life and Times of a Baltimore Black Panther, and The Greatest Threat, The Black Panther Party and COINTELPRO. He also currently works with Real News Network, an alternative news program based in Baltimore. Mr. Conway's talk will address his involvement with the Black Panther Party in Baltimore, the broader national and global context of the 1960s and 70s, the subsequent rise of mass incarceration following the demise of these prominent movements, as well as prison and community organizing today. Without further ado, it is my privilege to bring Mr. Eddie Conway to the stage. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I wasn't the Minister of Defense of the Black Panther Party. I was a leading member in the Black Panther Party here in Maryland um, and one of the key organizers. Uh, I'd like to start off uh, just talking about what happened to me as I was growing up. Uh, I was born in 1946. I grew up in West Baltimore uh, near Pennsylvania Avenue. And our world was a black world 
as I grew up in the 50s. Uh, I didn't come in contact with the white community. I was not aware, honestly, that there was a white community. I mean, the black community was self-contained. We had our stores, we had our businesses, we had our interactions and so on, uh, parties, social events, so on. And um, I was completely, uh, completely unaware that there was another community only blocks away. And I think that's because our parents kind of protected us as we grew up. And um, by the time I was in the third grade, our little school uh, put on a play. I was part of that play. And we did not have an auditorium. And we had to go out of the community for the first time as young people to a white community school. And when we went to this school, it shocked us. The auditorium that we put the play on in could have held our whole entire school. Uh, the facilities, the racetracks, the swimming pool, the, the, the science lab, all of this stuff was like shocking. And in fact, and this is something I don't tell a whole lot of people, we came back from that experience, our first encounter in the white community, we came back from that experience disillusioned, bitter, not really clear on what the problem was or what was wrong, but almost half our class failed. This was a Christmas play. So by June, half of us didn't make it to the fourth grade. Um, that's the kind of impact that that exposure had on us at that time. And so we went, you know, we kind of like absorbed it. We went on and we kept going, but we knew then that there was a difference. And of course, this was right around the time of Brown uh, versus the Board of Education and the whole integration thing. Well, Baltimore was one of the most segregated cities uh, in the country, everybody thought we were, I thought we were in the North. Everybody thought we was in the North. We did not know we were south of the Mason-Dixie line. Um, and so we didn't know we couldn't go out to Glen Oak Park. We didn't know we couldn't go into various stores and businesses downtown uh, because we were never taken in there. Uh, so we did not even understand what all this was about, but we grew up like teenagers. By the time I got to the uh, uh, early 60s, I was a teenager. We was running around. We were enjoying life, and pretty much we was unaware of what was going on, even though there was a civil rights movement going on in uh, in the South that was like had gained momentum from the uh, mid 50s. Uh, Young people, 16, 17, 18 at that time, didn't really have a lot of concern about what was going on in the South. We were aware of it. We seen some of the dogs being sick on people. We seen people being washed down the street with the water hoses, et cetera. But there was a party Friday night or there was a party Saturday night. And so I grew up kind of like apolitical and apathetic and 
at the same time kind of confused as to what was going on. Uh, and that confusion led me to at some point decide to go into the military. And so I joined the military at 18 and ended up in Texas, Georgia first, Texas next. And ultimately I end up in Germany. Uh, I joined and I think this was what we thought was a way out of the ghetto, a way out of our economic conditions, a way to improve our lot. So it was like four of us, we were running together. We, the four of us joined the military together. Two of us got sent to Vietnam. Two of us got sent to Germany. While I was in the military, well first, I mean my, my initial experience, and, and, and this is an institutional thing that happened. My initial experience in the military after I went through all the basic training, the, the advanced training, the, the stuff that they do, that they put you through. And at the time, I did not know it, but they was taking us in in mass because of Vietnam. They was building the army up so they could send us to Vietnam. I didn't understand it at the time, didn't really, wasn't even aware in 64 that Vietnam was actually getting ready to explode in terms of a very hot war. I go to Germany the first day I get to Germany. I'm a medical corpsman, uh, which means I went and, and trained how to treat the wounded, how to, you know, uh, uh, deal with injuries, et cetera, et cetera, a little uh, how to give right medicines out and that kind of stuff. So pretty much I'm not expecting to do a whole lot of hard work, okay? Um, I get to my unit in Germany, and this is kind of like my very first experience, and there's 25 of us in the platoon when I get there. There's 22 white guys, because this is like an all-male, yeah, well, actually it was, it was an all-male kind of unit. Uh, 22 white guys, two black guys, uh, one of them was the sergeant. He was the actual sergeant that ran the platoon under the control of a, 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 a high-ranking sergeant, but the day-to-day the -day operations was being ran by this black sergeant. Uh, the other guy was a private, and but he was a boxer. He was like one of the champion boxers there, right? So when I get in the unit, um, I try to settle in. The next day we go out in formation and they ask for two people from each platoon. It's a policy, it's like, well, we gotta clean up the area, we gotta peel potatoes, we gotta do this, we gotta do that. There's dirty work to be done, so every platoon presents like two person. So right away, they looked around and said, well, okay, Conway and the other black guy. And so we go, and I, I don't think anything about it because I'm new, I'm being broken in. I figure, you know, well, okay, I have to go through whatever initiation they go through to see how you're gonna act in a new unit. 
that went on for like 13 days. And the same two, me and this guy, the same two people from our unit went on KP, dirty duty, every day for two weeks. And I had just got there. I hadn't even had time to go get a haircut or anything, right? Finally, on that 13th day, and I talk about it in my book, incidentally, on that 13th day, when they said, the company commander, which was like down in front of the ranks, said, uh, I need two people from each unit. And, um, and as they were selecting the people from the different platoons, before they got to my platoon, I hollered out, like, let Conway go, right? Which is like uh, my, probably my first act of rebellion. And I was rebelling because I was, I was, I was taking it personal because I'd been there for two weeks and not near one of them other guys had went. You know, I went every time the other brother went every time, right? And I couldn't understand what was going on. So I yelled out, and you don't do that in the army. You don't do that in the ranks. Uh, you don't make a scene in formation. You know, so of course they took me to company commander's office and and of course, like, what's wrong? What's your problem? Why did you do that? How, you know, you've been trained, you know better. And so I explained, I said, I've been here for two weeks. This has been going on and on and on and on. And I think it's like racial and I don't like it. And I'm fed up. Well, what happened after that was like, okay, leave him alone, let him go do stuff, let him take care of himself. And eventually, in about 18 months, I rose to the rank of sergeant, which is kind of like for, for the military, that was kind of fast. Uh, but I was like a black G.I. Joe, kind of aggressive like that, right? But my point is that just standing up for yourself as a black person at that time in the military was an act of rebellion. It was like something to, to, to label you and to, to make you seem like you were doing something wrong. Well, I wasn't doing anything wrong at all. But because of that, and because I kind of like rose through the ranks, the upper brothers would come and bring their problems to me and I would try to figure out how to address it, talk to the other sergeants, do whatever it was, was necessary to do. But my experience was that the military was a really very racist institution, but at the same time, I was still an American GI, and I had actually signed up to go to Vietnam. One of the guys that enlisted with me was my brother-in-law. Well, he would have been my future brother-in-law if he had lived. Uh, he got to Vietnam and he got ambushed in the cow pasture and he died. And I felt kind of responsible for it because I'm, my attitude was that pretty much I was like the leader of the pack. So all four of us went into the military because I was kind of like uh, dragging them along and they ended up in Vietnam and he ended up getting killed and I felt responsible. And so I was actually 
going to go over to Vietnam and revenge his death because I'm still on that kind of time. Uh, so I went and I start filling out the papers because at that time I didn't have enough time to go to Vietnam. I had like my, the, the amount of time I had left wouldn't allow me to go and do a full tour in Vietnam. So one, they had to extend my time, they had to train me, and they was gonna give me, you know, additional rank and so on. I was gonna, so I was gonna jump on it. Before that happened, I woke up one morning and the guys would be bringing me newspapers and whatnot. I was taking advantage of the fact that I was a sergeant so I could stay in. I didn't have to do anything. They would bring me food. They would bring me papers, et cetera. I would sit in there. As long as they did their work outside, I didn't care. Um, I opened up the Stars and Stripes, which was a newspaper one day, and on the front of the paper is an armored personnel carrier, which is like a, 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 a kind of like a box-shaped thing with tracks on it and a machine gun on the top. And it's this soldier, and it's just it's incidental that he happened to be white, but there's a white soldier on top of this uh, armored personnel carrier with a 50 caliber machine gun, and that's the the gun that shoots those bullets that are about that long and they run up on a belt. And he's pointing this 50 caliber machine gun at a bunch of black women over on the street corner and they are protesting. You can see from the picture that they are up there enraged, they're, they're furious, they got their fists up. And I'm like, what the devil is going on? What is happening here. This is like the army. The army is not supposed to be in the middle of a city. So I read the article. It's Newark, New Jersey. Some black guys had broke into the uh, armory. They had stole some weapons. They called a state of an emergency. They came out. They rounded up every black guy in the community, which is right now, it's kind of mind-boggling because at that time, it was like not every guy. They lied. got all of them took them all, put them in stadiums, put them in places, and then they went through the black community and ransacked every house, and they tore up floorboards and, and attic space and et cetera, looking for the gun. Well, the women were out there protesting about the state of disrepair that the houses were left in, and here this guy is with a machine gun pointing at him, and by me being a medic, I knew that that machine gun, if you shoot somebody with that machine gun, the bullets go through 10, 15 people, no question. The bullet, that, that 50 caliber bullet would knock that pole down right there. I mean, that's how powerful that weapon is. It would just chew that pole up and it would collapse. So I'm like, and, and I think the thing that really kind of like got me was that it's a electronic trigger kind of machine gun, which means it's got two little buttons on it. And the little buttons there, you, you hold it like this, and there's two little buttons, and if you press both, if you press one of them, nothing happens. You press one of them, nothing happens. You press both of them buttons, 
the gun just automatically goes off 25, 30 times. You can't even stop it. It's like you being electrocuted. You press those buttons and it just gained control of you before you can even, so 25, 30 rounds would have went into that crowd. All of those people would have been dead. And the thing that hit me, I looked up in the locker and I seen my uniform and I looked at the crowd and I seen my mother. It, not actually my mother, it didn't happen here in Baltimore, but it was like, damn, that could be my mother. And I said, what the? <laughs> okay, I won't say that, but I'm doing something wrong and there's something wrong here in America and I need to go home. So that's what made me leave the military because I probably would have been rice in the field right now in Vietnam or something. Uh, I came home and, but I, I this, not just this love, but this faith in America as the best thing that's been happening in the world. By that time, I had been to several countries. I had been to Mexico, I had been to Denmark, I had been to Austria, I had been to Spain, so on. So I'm like, America, okay, this works. You know, so I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna find out what's wrong and I'm gonna see why we can't help fix it. And so my intentions was to come home and to see what the problem was and to see if I couldn't get involved in trying to reform whatever was out of whack. And toward that end, I came home and I joined the NAACP and I worked with CORE. And uh, these were civil rights organizations at the time and one of the things that happened is the Civil Rights Bill had been passed in 65 and uh, integration was something that was occurring uh, across the nation. The schools were opening, the businesses were opening, the um, opportunities were presenting itself to black people. But what we found out was that black people couldn't afford those opportunities. They couldn't afford to send the children to the schools. They couldn't afford to move in the houses that had become available because primarily we were doing blue collar jobs. We were working for minimum wages or less. And this was true across the board. And in all too many cases, the white collar jobs had excluded us. Either we couldn't get membership in or, or we couldn't pass the exams or whatever, right? So what we did, and this is like 19, I came home in 67, and so I actually started doing work around the early part of 68. Um, so what we figured we would do is we would find white collar positions that were open that didn't allow us to come in and we would put our best examples of people up for employment. And so I was tasked with integrating and I had a choice, either the fire department or the police department in Spires Point. 
And so I opted because of my military background and because of my medical stuff, I opted for the fire department. So I went down there, took the exams, and we was prepared to challenge them if they didn't let our people in. So we ended up integrating the fire department down in Spurs Point and um, got in there. And, and this is Edgemere, Maryland. It's, it's, it's called the Edgemere Fire Department is what it is. It's, it's Edgemere, but it's responsible for Bethlehem Steel, for Maryland Dry Dock, et cetera, right? Uh, got in there, and it's like six of us got in. There's, uh, uh, it's 101 of us all together, and 95 of the guys are white. And so I'm listening to the guys. And to, so this is outside of the city limits. And um, just by virtue of me getting in there, an assumption, and by virtue of me being ex-military, there was an assumption made that I was on the side of all the white guys, uh, uh, that I was one of them, or I was acceptable. And so there's all this discussion going on and talk going on and weapons being sold around me and like clan meetings. And, you know, so I'm constantly pushing back that when I hear things that's like, Oh, the welfare queens is taking all our monies. We tired of that. Uh, 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 the riots were going on then in Detroit. Uh, the riots had happened. The riots had happened in other places. New York had a riot, uh, uh, Miami, et cetera. And so it was all of this talk about, well, if the, the, the jungle bunnies get out of hand, you know, we got something for them. Uh, we're going to make, we'll, we'll, take them down if they try to come out here. Pretty much it was like suburbia against the urban community, right? So I would hear that, I would push back, and at some point, it got to a point where, and, and y'all know what the picture of a fire station looked like. Uh, you just sit around, you sit around, and at some point, the bell ring, you go out, you put out a fire, you come back, you might sit around for two or three or four days, nothing happens. You know, you clean the equipment and stuff, but pretty much it's like laid back, chatting, playing cards, so on. It got so bad that when I walk in, the conversations would stop. You know, uh, angry black man <laughs> in the fire department, right? Um, but it scared me because this was just a... Uh, a chance encounter in a chance institution, Edgemere Fire Department, I could have went anywhere, but the amount of hostility and racism that existed in 68, early 68, this was like scary. I mean, it was, it, it was almost hard to believe that I could have just closed my eyes and put my finger down somewhere and come up with that kind of environment and as I started checking, I, it dawned on me that that environment existed in America. And there was a tale of polarization uh, to the extreme, and it was angry. And so I looked around because I realized the kind of protection and support that the black community might need in the event that something should occur, which that, that very year, I, I, 
Well, y'all don't know this, but Martin Luther King got assassinated. Uh, and there were riots in a hundred cities. And there was the reaction to those riots in a hundred cities in all kinds of military uh, forms. And then some of it was in civilian uh, forms. So, I, and you could feel that tension in the air at the time. And so, I looked around and I said, what organization is doing stuff to, to help create a better community, to help make the community safer? Uh, that uh, at that point, of course, I was way beyond the idea of turning the other cheek and, and letting people hose me or sick dogs on me or any of that stuff. I wasn't trying to hear it. So I started investigating and ultimately I came up with the Black Panther Party. And the Black Panther Party itself was taking a position, as strange as it seems, because black lives matter. And uh, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, black men by officials, correctional officers, one every 28 hours. We didn't have the mass meeting. There was a killing here, or there was a lynching, lynching there, or somebody got killed for whatever occurred. They were out of order. They were doing the party. Actually formalized and, 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 and came together and attracted people from around the country because this was reoccurring almost in every community. And so like the Black Lives Matters now uh, thing that's happening was the same thing that was happening then and it was about the same thing. Uh, and it was protesting the amount of police violence in the black community Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights, we always would end up losing somebody. Uh, and it would always be he was reaching in his pockets or, or they were just completely out of hand go. But in addition to that, I noticed that the black, that children were going to school, and I mean this was a lot of children, were going to school hungry every morning without breakfast, and there was no lunch program. In fact, that's one of the legacies of the Black Panther Party is the free lunch program or the food program where they feed young people today. They just co-opted that and took it and made it a government program. But it was something we did by going out and begging, barring, and stealing eggs, bacon, cereal, milk, etc. And we started feeding children and it was an embarrassing kind of thing for the government and for America in general because America in general was telling everybody that this is the richest nation in the world. They was telling everybody that this is the place that you come to. So it did not look right when there was two, three or four hundred children lined up waiting to come in to eat breakfast in the morning in almost every major city. There was something wrong with that picture and it was that picture was one of the things that made them decide to target the Black Panther Party. 
and they decided right away that we was an internal threat to the security of America uh, because one, we were black men and women, and this is probably uh, the first organization, and I'm not gonna say it's the only organization, that men and women, uh, some of our leaders were women, some of our leaders were efficiently, then you moved up in rank and you did that. Ultimately, the, uh, some of the years that the Black Panther Party existed was existed under the control of a woman, Elaine Brown. Some of the time it existed under Huey P. Newton, et cetera. But the thing is that here was black men, black women that had the audacity to one, to stand up and say they would defend themselves. Um, since the inception of the United States, 1776 or whatever, there's always been an explicit agreement that have guns. I'm sure there probably wasn't much of a problem with white women having guns too. But you know, in America, it's okay for you to have a gun. It's a section, whatever that is. Uh, it didn't become, men and women said, oh, okay, constitutional rights, second amendment, oh, okay, I want a gun. Then all of a sudden, it was all of these gun control laws. Oh, you can't have this, you can't have that, you can't do this, you can't. I can very well remember, and in fact, I just left Texas uh, a few days ago. Guns in the back of the trucks. I mean, they just drive up and down the street with the guns. I mean, imagine me driving down the street with a gun. I, you, I'd be sitting on a curb somewhere, and I'd be in jail the next, next hour, right? So guns was okay until we picked them up. And guns was okay until we said that we was gonna defend ourselves and defend our community. That was a crime. The crime was standing up for our rights. The crime was feeding our hungry children. The crime was pointing out the discrepancies with our newspapers, challenging the powers to be. But the real crime was not our actions. The real crime was that the Mexican-Americans decided to create the Brown Berets, which was a carbon copy of the Black Panther Party. The real crime was that the Puerto Rican community decided to create the Young Lords, which was the carbon copy of the Black Panther Party. I'm, I'm talking national organizations now it, that's growing and developing the same time the Black Panther Party is. The real crime was that the Native Americans decided to create the American Indian Movement, AIM, and they had red berets. The, the Latinos had brown berets. Uh, the real crime was the white community created a White Panther Party. And then that went to New Zealand, that went to Australia, that went to India. There was an Indian Black Panther Party that went to Israel. And I know this is, this, this is the stretch. There was a Black Panther Party in Israel. It went to, it went to the Congo Brazzaville. And this was the crime. The fact that those ideas were spreading and those ideas were 
ideas that said we could harness the resources in our community, we could have a different future, we could have a better way, we could do the things that we needed done in our community without have to get in the a grant from the Ford Foundation or a grant from Rockefeller, who was the big granters then, uh, uh, a grant from these other foundations. We didn't need that. We decided we needed a health clinic in Baltimore. We found, we found the building. We went to the medical schools. We encouraged some of the nurses and students and student doctors to come help us. Uh, we went and we talked to people that had funds still exist right now in Baltimore, but I mean, it's obviously it's not associated with us. Yeah. When we decided that that uh, we needed community call, we went to city hall, et cetera, to try to create that. And so by us taking the initiative to change our conditions and at the same time, by us pointing out that this economic arrangement wasn't working for us because some people, the tale of two cities, were, were enjoying like a really, uh, a lot of the resources on the planet and other people were starving to death or living uh, with scarcity. By us pointing that out, that was a bigger problem. So they created this organization. That, well, it, well, the FBI is not an organization. It's a, a government institution, a law enforcement arm of the uh, Justice Department. They used it to create something called COINTELPRO, a counterintelligent program that allowed the FBI to use any enforcement agency in any municipality, small town, county, park rangers, uh, state police, uh, the IRS, the military intelligence, the CIA, all of those agents were under the control of the FBI using COINTELPRO. They started locking us up. Their mandate was to destroy the Black Panther Party. Their Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or Stokely Carmichael's among people and have respect. So they started a couple of examples uh, in New York, just all across the state, and the uh, leadership. Let me back up one minute. When Malcolm X died, when he was assassinated, his bodyguard was a guy named Gene Roberts. His bodyguard, if you ever see pictures of him, his assassination, you'll see a guy bending over him, giving him mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, artificial respiration. Well, that guy is a guy named Gene Roberts. Gene Roberts was Malcolm X's chief bodyguard. When Malcolm X died, that was like early 65, February, and the Black Panther Party started in 66. Well, Gene Roberts joined the Black Panther Party, and of course he joined the Black Panther Party with the credentials that said he was Malcolm X's bodyguard. You know, that's like saying like I was George Washington's lieutenant during the revolution, you know. So 
he joined the Black Panther Party. He inserted himself in the leadership. He rose through the ranks and so on. And at some point, they locked up all the leaders of the New York chapters, Jamaica, Queens, uh, Harlem, the Bronx, Manhattan, everybody, every leader got locked up, including Tupac's mother. Uh, and they put him in jail, and they said they was going to blow up the God, botanical gardens, they was going to blow up Manhattan, they was going to drop the bridges in the river, they was going to uh, explode something in the Harlem Tunnel and whatnot. And what they had was 12 empty pipes with no caps, uh, uh, a bag of black gunpowder, uh, and uh, a map of the gardens and whatnot. And so they put all of these people under a million dollar bail. And of course, these are Black Panthers. We are like living from hand to mouth pretty much, even though I had a job. I mean, a lot of us had jobs, but we didn't have that kind of money. So these people stayed in jail for two years. The trial came and up pops Gene Roberts part of the Black Panther leadership. He is a New York City police ex, always have been assigned to report and to undermine. They went to jail for two years, millions of dollars worth of bail, drained millions of dollars of our funds for lawyers, obviously, you know, um, and he was working for the police the whole time. And this was a COINTELPRO operation and the jury deliberated for like four or five hours. And uh, the 156 charges, they threw all of them out. Uh, the people walked away, but the damage was done. They had taken the main leadership away for two years. They have drained our resources and our funds that ultimately led to the split in the party. That's just one example. This is direct police involvement in destroying an organization that wasn't doing anything at all, but they've created that scenario that these people are a threat and we need to get them off the street and we don't care. It's, you know, they can find out we're wrong later, but in the meanwhile, get rid of them. In Chicago, they did the same thing with Fred Hampton. It's more egregious because he lost his life. Another panther lost his life. Uh, a dozen or so panthers got shot up in the process. They drugged everybody in the office with Kool-Aid, with using one of their informers. And they went in in the middle of the night. Uh, the guy that was on security, when they knocked, he answered the door. They shot him in his heart. The gun went off, shot up into the ceiling, and they used submachine guns and shot the whole entire earth up. Fred Hampton, which was the chairman of Illinois at the time, uh, had been organizing the Blackstone Rangers to start being, and this was then a black gang, uh, 5,000 members. He was organizing them to start helping to feed the children, to start looking out for the community, to start 
turning their activities around towards something positive in the community. They did not want that to happen. They assassinated him. Uh, when they got in there, they found out that he wasn't dead. They ended up shooting him again twice. Um, the next day, the story came out that there was a raid on the Panther headquarters. The chairman got killed. Uh, somebody else got killed. People got shot up because they had a, a shootout, a Wild West shootout in the Panther office, and the Panthers wouldn't surrender, and they wouldn't give up, and and it was like 99 bullet holes or whatever. And um, at the time, Ramsey Clark, which was used to be the attorney general, he was retired. He got involved to say, well, wait, this, this don't look right. He got involved and other people got involved. And what they found out was that there was no Panther shots other than that one that went up in the ceiling when this guy got hit bullet hole. And what the police did was they took nails and drove nails in the front door, and then they showed the news people the door with all these holes, like shots, right? Anyway, long story short, ended up paying the families like $2 million. Um, they did it again up in uh, 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 Connecticut. They blew up our offices in um, Des Moines, Iowa. And over and over and over again, they did things, and their mandate was, we don't care what you do, get them off the street, lock them up, even if they walk away later, it's okay, but lock them up now, right? And that's what they did, and they did that with me. And for 44 years, I protested, people protested, people around the world protested, uh, and after 12 years, years, they discovered a technical flaw in how they had locked me and 500 other people up. That these people were locked up illegally, it was against the Constitution of the United States, and the Maryland Constitution was actually in conflict with the Constitution of the United States, and they just pretty much said, in what they said was like, if you think he's guilty, it's okay. Lock him up. Or if you think she's guilty, it's okay. It's, it's your call. And that's what they were doing. They were making a judgment call. They was deciding the law. And they was railroading us through the prison system. And it's not all black people because some of, some of the guys are still in there now are white. Uh, this is like, after they discovered this in us. They started fighting. They used the legal system to resist an additional 32 years. I mean, constant fighting from one court to the next court to the next court to the higher court, winning and having them challenging it and going back up. 32 more years I spent in the prison system, even though they knew they were wrong. And in the process, 250 people, or around that number, died. That shouldn't have never even been in the jail. Half of the people died. And then it's still like now what's left of us, it's, and I just got out last year.
after 44 years. What's left of us, it's still 100 people in there now that shouldn't be in there, should not have been in there after 1982. In fact, the crime, the, the violation was so bad, they changed the constitution of the state of Maryland so that they wouldn't do it anymore. But they left us all to die. And they're still leaving almost 100 guys in there to die right now. So anyway, let me, let me move beyond this a minute and just talk. Well, I was there. I found myself there. I'm in the prison system. I didn't like it. The, the first seven years was really rough for me because I was pissed off. You know, who wouldn't be? And I was spent six of those seven years on lockup in solitary confinement because I wasn't trying to hit. Uh, one, I, I was not an animal and I didn't appreciate being treated like an animal. And uh, just, just give you one little example. Go in the penitentiary and everybody gets a tray. You go to eat. They fill the tray up because it's prisoners serving the food. So it's and at the time, I have to admit, it wasn't gruel. It's gruel now. It's horrible now. But at the time, it was still food. So you would get a tray full of food. You'd go sit down. And uh, when the last guy came in, they make the first guy go out. So if you say in the middle there. You're just starting to eat. It doesn't matter. As people go out, they come by and they tap the table and you got to get up and you got to leave. And so it doesn't matter whether you finish eating or not. You know, you got to. And so there's all these big disposable units there and you throw the food in. There's tons of food being thrown away. But the idea is that when we say you can't have any more food. This is how you train a dog. You know, you eat, you eat now or I'm taking it from you. And this is how you control. It's Pavlov's theory. This is how you control people. So I'm, my very first day, obviously, I'm like, mm, y'all got to go. I'm trying to eat. I'm actually not actually not rebelling I'm actually honestly not looking for any trouble at all I'm new I'm the new kid on the block but I don't want nobody bothering me you gotta go I'm not Joe here come the guards but here come the prisoners leave him alone don't bother him and so right away there's a problem and the problem is that I just want to be treated like a human and that's wrong because you're not supposed to want to be treated like a human because the only way they can contain you in the prison system is to dehumanize you, to diminish who you are, to make you feel powerless, to give an 18-year-old with a GED the power to tell somebody that's 50 with a master's degree 
that you got to get up and go out of here because I said so and you can't finish eating. That's not only humiliating, that's dehumanizing. And when you say no, this the force of the state in terms of armed violence that comes there and say, you got to listen to this idiot and leave your food and go and lock in and be hungry. And when you don't do that, you are attacked and you are put in the hole or you put in solitary confinement. So it took like six of the seven years for us, the guards and I, to come to an own. Um, and it, it cost a little bit. My shoulder, they broke my jaw, they bust my head six or seven, no, 16 times. Uh, and they made a serious effort to actually kill me or have somebody kill me uh, over and over and over again. And at the same time, I was not about to allow them to dehumanize me. So every time they pushed, I pushed back. Uh, ultimately, they shipped me around the system. And when I went up to Hagerstown, up in the prison in Hagerstown, and they kind of like, they ring a bell to let you go eat. Oh, okay, I shouldn't have did that. I sh Sorry about that. That's the only thing I can hear, right? So, <laughs> uh, the couple thousand guys going back and forth, the, they, they let them build in uh, one building at a time, so it might be 400 people. But I get up to Hagerstown, and they sent me and some of my friends up there. Uh, we get up there, and everybody is walking around. All everybody, when they let people out, everybody's walking around like this. Everybody's looking at the ground, and it's like it, it's, it, it almost reminds me of what I would imagine slavery was like in the 1830s or 40s. They all, everybody's. You know, I can't figure this out, you know. So here we are. We're walking around. We don't have a clue. And family, we asked the guys, why has everybody got their head down? And so they said, if you look at the guards, they will pull you out of the line and shake you down and check you. And the line keeps going and you can't get back in the line and catch up with your buddies. And when you get to the mess hall, they set everybody according to who comes through the door together. And so if you want to say, if you want to stay with your buddies, you got to stay with that line or you lose your place and you'll end up sitting with Joe or Bill or somebody else. And um, so they were using that to intimidate the guys and they would be standing there with the little, they pull you all out the line. 
what can they do? And so, I mean, this is just one, it's so, it's, 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 it's insane that this kind of stuff goes on. This is just one example. And the guys start holding their heads up. And they stopped pulling them out the line because there was nothing they could do about it. Um, but time and time again, it was like stuff like that. But while I was up there, one of the things... The, the guys felt kind of comfortable around me. I'm old, I'm harmless. Uh, so they would talk and they would ask me, well, what was it like or what was this or what was that? Um, and I would talk to them. But I would hear all day long, all week long, stuff that I didn't want to hear. Uh, hey, uh, Bill, when you get out, make sure you go find Joe and you shoot him in his head because he disrespected so-and-so and so. Uh, hey, uh, uh, Bunny, make sure we uh, take that corner back over that we lost. Uh, you be out there, you, you soften the guys up, we'll be out there in about six months. Uh, if you got a whack a cup of them, and I'm using whack, you know. What's going on here? Guys are pouring out of Hagerstown. You know, I mean, just in the jail I was in, like 18, 20 every week, going back to the community. And I'm thinking like, oh, no, this is bad news. So I need to do something. So I actually started, when I, when I would hear that, like, oh, wait a minute, y'all. Come here, sit down. And I started talking to the guys and I would talk to three or four or five, and 25 would go out. And I'm, it, it dawned on me real quick that, okay, this is not working because I'm, I'm catching a few people, but so many people, if people going out like that from here, they're going out from the other jails. It was like maybe 27 help, and I needed to talk to some people that, would be interested in helping to mentor some young people because what I found out was that there is no rehabilitation in the prison system. Well, I knew that anyway, but there was nothing being done from the time a person came in, he did his bit, he interacted with his friends or her friends, et cetera. They got, they, you know, they pretty much got clicked up or whatever. They made plans for their future. None of it didn't seem like it was. And, and that's not to say that there weren't people in there that was studying, that was going to college, that was trying to do something positive, that had made some other alternatives. I'm talking about that outflow that was destructive and dangerous to the community. And that was my concern because my family is from the community. It wasn't nothing political about it. It was personal. So that's why I started working. Uh, and I realized I couldn't work by myself. I started talking to other people. And then they end up getting the American Friends Service Committee involved. And they came in and they helped train us. And we got trained and then we start working with young people. But one of the things that happened is that, of course, they shipped me out like a troublemaker again. Well, I'm a troublemaker. Uh, because I'm talking to gang members. And I'm talking to gang members because they're the shooters. So, I mean, if I don't want somebody shot, 
I need to talk to the people that's shooting them. So how can you fix that if you don't deal with what the issue is? And of course, the issue is bigger than that, but I had to go initially to that person that's going to be the, the device that's going to destroy somebody else's life or get his life destroyed or, or so on. So I'm talking to him, and now I'm, I'm organizing. Oh, and in fact, they put me in a gang. I was, <laughs> this is, uh, how, how I'm looking on time. Okay, this is so funny. I, I come in from the yard one day. I go over in there, and there's like 50 little young, and I'm so, I'm the only one in there with like gray hair, you know, and I'm saying, <laughs> what's that got to do with me? You know, I mean, why am I here, you know? So I, of course, asked the, you know, the, the officers, like, well, why am I here? Say, oh, um, we got orders to put you in the gang thing. So I said, well, why? You know, I, want, I need an explanation. So finally they said, well, because you used to be a member of the Black Panther Party. So I said, at this time, the Black Panther Party had been disbanded for 25 years. And I was the only Black Panther Party, former Black Panther Party member in the prison. So I'm saying, well, one, the organization don't exist. And two, I can't very well be a gang by myself. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, the math don't work out. I mean, you know, I'm the leader, the members. I mean, what's up with that? You know, but it took three years it happened. Took three years, and I, and I just stayed right on their case. Took three years to get taken out of the gang photo. But really, I was in the gang photo because I was talking to these brothers, and I was working with these brothers. And uh, family, they shipped me around. They shipped me to Cumberland. They shipped me to almost every major jail. And and each time we fought them, we made them ship me back. And I get back and they say, well, look, if you stop talking to these people, if you stop messing with these guys, we won't bother you anymore. And so and this is like the gang unit, the lieutenant captain. And so I told them right there, I said, well, you might as well just ship me back out people in my community and I'm here and I can talk to them and I can help prevent that. And if you want to ship me to Alaska, you just have to do it because I'm not going to stop. And so they left me alone. But a year later, they shipped me down to Jessup, which I wasn't mad because it's like only a few miles away from Baltimore. It made it easy on everybody, right? But I get to Jessup. And this is JCI, Jessup Correctional Institute. This is 2009. When I get there, every week, and y'all can do check the research and whatnot, 2009, every week there was a fatal stabbing in this institution. Every week. Some of it wasn't fatal because of shock trauma, but it required shock trauma to save the lives. But it was so bad 
and, and I, I talk about it in the book also, right? It was so bad that you would go out to lunch, you would come back in, and there would be a body laying on the tier, and you and blood, and guys had to just step over the body, make sure you didn't get blood on your shoes, and you go and you lock in your cell. Because immediately after that, once they discovered the body, they come, they open everybody's door one at a time, and they take your clothes off, and they check you to see if you got any wounds, any blood on you, any scratches, any indication of fights, etc. So nobody knew nothing, nobody said nothing. But every week, and just obviously that's 52 bodies in a year, you know, and that was going on. So we took that organization, the friend of a friend, with the help of the American Friends Service Committee, and we, and we fought the administration down there. And it took a year to get the organization accepted. We got the organization accepted, and we went out, and, 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 we, and we got it accepted on the premise that we're going to deal with these people in these street organizations. We're going to work with them. We're going to organize them. And we went out and we found two people from the Bloods, two people from the Crips, two people from BGF, two people from the Muslims. They had their own Murder, Inc. incorporation, two people from the Christians, uh, two people from the Nation of Islam, uh, a couple college students, uh, a couple jocks, et cetera. And we put together months. And then we brought in people from the population. But in the process about what's communications, what's negotiation, what's mass, uh, good parenting skills, uh, and so on. And we went out to do resumes. You know, we would have debates. Uh, I can <laughs> on the wrong side, of course, of the debate, it's like doing the process of doing that. And so when there was a problem in the yard between the Bloods or the Crips or the Muslims or the Christians, there was people in our core group that knew people in the core group that could say, like, look, Billy is beefing with Bob and it's over something petty, let's set them down, let's get together, let's figure out how to resolve it, or who was in the wrong, how to make whoever's been injured whole, et cetera, the whole nine yards. And that started happening. And the more classes we did, the more people in the population became involved in that process of negotiating and resolving. And to the point, when I left place, um, no weapons, not no violence, because just before I left, in fact, I left in March last year, in February, there was this big gang dispute, and they agreed that they would send 20 guys to the library from one side, and I'm just using the library, but it was down on a flat area. They would send 20 guys, and the other group would send 20 guys, and there would be no weapons involved. And they just went down there, and they just fought, and they just fought, and they just fought, and the police came, maced them, clubbed them, beat them up, took them, locked them up. No weapons. So far, 
it's been a year and a half now since then. And there's no, and this is just a correctional institute, no weapons used. It was a direct results of the friend of a friend, the way we organized, the way we put people together, the way they bonded, and the way they elevated their consciousness. Out of that grew the work that I'm doing now out in the community. Although I work for the real news, I have to say that because it's going to be reported. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a producer for the real news, and you need to go on the internet. <laughs> you need to go on the internet and check it out. It's an alternative television network that's telling people what really is the problem in America and doing it in a very effective kind of way. I got out exactly a year, a month, and uh, a few days now. One year, one month, a couple of days, right? When I came to Baltimore, it was like Rip Van Winkle. You know, I left in 1970. I came back in 2014. I was shocked. I mean, shocked, devastated. I could not believe. And, it's, and, and I'm, I'm, obviously, I didn't got adjusted to the fact. I could not believe the state of some of Baltimore City. I thought it was a tale of two cities when I got locked up. When I got out, it's a tale of a war-torn city and the inner harbor and the gentrified areas. It's shocking. I mean, shocking. I, I, I couldn't even believe it. One of the things that happened while I was in Germany, part of our maneuvers was in some of the old areas that was part of World War II, they didn't rebuild everything. So some of those areas they left dilapidated and war-torn, and we would run maneuvers and stuff in those areas as a training. Uh, part of North Avenue, I mean, well, I don't, I don't even have to name the street. Y'all been in the Baltimore. Y'all know what the deal is. Some of those places looked like they had suffered from a war. So I got out thinking, to be quite honest, that I gave at the office. I've kind of like served my time. I've did everything I needed to do. I'm going to go on the beach. I'm going to party. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, I'm old. I'm, you know, it's not that much distance in the future, so I need to just enjoy myself. And I, 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 I came out and I seen the conditions that exist, and it just happened. It was like nobody knew what the community was like 50 years, 40 years ago. Nobody knew that there were communities. Nobody knew that there weren't dilapidated houses. Nobody knew that you couldn't walk down the street and look through a window and see the sky through a house. There was no such thing. There were people living in those houses. There were families. People had jobs. There was nobody, and I don't want, I'm not trying to be funny, but there was nobody standing on the corner. Looked like they're getting ready to fall over. I, you know, I couldn't figure out how this had happened, 
And then I go up to John Hopkins and I see quarter million dollar houses. I go down to Inner Harbor and I see the wonders of the scientific world. And I'm saying, well, three blocks away, the communities are devastated. What is going on? What's the problem? Well, I knew what was going on and what the problem was. Like some kind of way, instead of like most civilizations and most societies advance, the technology allow them to advance, the economy allow them to advance, the, the, uh, just the, the growth of the community itself advances. What happened here? Well, and I don't want to go into it because it's, it's, it's probably a little too far and a little too long for me to go into it, but there was a reaction right around the end of the civil rights era about black independence, about black liberation, about black capitalism, about black people coming to power. But it wasn't just about black people, because you remember law and order, it was about young white students. It was about young people saying no to the war. It was about the counterculture movement. It was about people saying that, 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 that gays should have uh, the rights that every other person has. It was about a movement in America to change the premise of how America dealt with its people. And that movement was stuffed out. And that movement was stifled, but it was choked to death in some cases. Some cases it was locked up. Some cases it was chased out of the country. Some cases it was just brought off. In the cases where it was brought off, people went and they did whatever they did and enjoyed their future and so on and left the people that were left behind, behind in such a way that right now, two thirds of say just the black community is devastated. Oh, one little, one little statistics. Um, and this is why I was doing that with Obama, right? And it's not his fault because I recognized there was an economic crisis in the 2006, 7, 8. And he came in and kind of like patched it up. But he patched it up because he transferred the wealth of the communities to Wall Street. He transferred trillions of dollars to Wall Street. One little fact. From the time the black community got free from slavery... 1865 or whenever it was, because that Emancipation Proclamation thing didn't do it. Uh, and I'm not sure that it's even done now. But from that point, from that point until Obama got elected, we had accumulated one-tenth of the wealth of the white community. Since that election, up to date, we have lost, I mean, we have lost 50% of the wealth of the black community has disappeared from the wealth of the white community to now having one twentieth. about the loss of a trillion dollars or better and keeping these stores, whatever, gone. 50% of it. It is not just 
that Baltimore is decaying, you go, well, you don't even have to go anywhere in Newark. The whole place is decaying. You go to Detroit, you go, and you go outside of the gentrified area in the urban center city buildup, whether it's in Philadelphia or wherever, you come into the same level of poverty. There's enormous mass poverty now spreading throughout America as the wealth is being transferred, obviously, to a small group of people that are benefiting from it, and most people aren't. You, you're, you're fortunate, and uh, somebody called me on the statistics, uh, but I was saying that you get your bachelor's degree and you're going to be 1% of the world's population. Somebody told me that, no, you'll be 6% of the leading world's population, right? Uh, but that means you'll be the leaders tomorrow because the other 94% of us is going to be listening to y'all or looking to y'all for guidance and direction. So it's like really important what you do and how you do it. And that's why I'm taking a minute to kind of like share this because when I got out, I realized there's a problem. I went to work right away. There's a high school in Baltimore called Connections. It's a, a no, it's in West Baltimore. There's 1,000 students, no library. No library, 1,000 students, not even a single book in the library. We went there and we begged, borrowed, and we didn't steal, but we got books. And we put four to 5,000 books in there. And we still need to catalog them and that kind of stuff. But we're building a library. We looked at the, 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 the food scarcity. This is, the Baltimore is, is a, a food desert in terms of wholesome food, fresh food. You gotta own transportations to go out to Trader Joe's or to go to Whole Foods. You have to have the ability to move around to get what normal people consider a, a healthy nutritional food. So we started an urban farm and we are now growing food in the city with the help of students and the help of, of, of in the projects. And, and the statistics for money in the Sandtown Winchester region be, uh, to incarcerate people and to lock people up and um, keep that community under control. The highest rate of violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we went down there and we start working with people down in the community. And as a result of working with people down in the community, they made arrangements for us to have a permanent spot down in the recreation center. And I have to say some of the real news people are down there, like helping with the farm and also helping in the recreation center, teaching the skills of journalism and so on. But we start working with young people. There's a better than a to make our little difference. So seeing the conditions forced me and I'm just one person and other people came and said okay I can help and I can do this or I can do that and I can do that the sister up there got us 25 fruit trees and and I'm, I'm, I'm proud I looked at them yesterday I'm proud of that um, and so in a couple of years they'll have fruit growing at the farm 
And at some point, we're going to violate the laws and we're going to bring in chickens and roosters. <laughs> you know, so people can learn, young people can learn how to feed themselves and learn what's involved in that process, but also learn the camaraderie of working together. So we're doing that kind of stuff. Um, I should stop, right? Okay, all right. Um, one of the things I'm going to say, and this is like materialistic and, 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 and capitalistic, but my books are over there, they're $10. Uh, please buy one, because we need the money. But uh, I'm going to answer some questions now, and it doesn't matter what it is or what you ask. Nothing's stupid, nothing's too personal. Uh, I pretty much, I stand here where I am and I can stand behind whatever it is that you ask me. All right, thank you. Wow, wow. Uh, just to repeat, He's got both of his books, two books over there. One is a memoir, and the other one is a study of the state repression on the movements that he was speaking about earlier. And at $10 a pop, that's quite a steal. Uh, I don't know if we need to get a volunteer over there, if people no, want to buy one before they head out. Um, <laughs> take, take care. Oh, we've got one here. All right. Yeah, we got somebody that's going to take care of that. So I'm going to pass the mic around for, for questions now. Just raise your hand, and I'll come find you. Um, hello. My name's Clayton. I, you know what I need? I need some water, though. It's a, can somebody get me some water? But go ahead. I was just um, going to ask you, like, you talk about all the the kind of struggles you faced from the police and the government back like 50 years ago. Um, what do you, do you have any suggestions for people like trying to do grassroots organizations now in terms of how to be as effective as possible without getting themselves hurt or, you know, stuff like that mm -hmm. in light mm -hmm. of everything that's been going on recently? Well, one of the things that I try to tell people is one, stay within the law. And uh, if, if you know what the National Defense of American Act is, you might not, you probably want to go look it up. That's a law that just got passed. That's a law that means that they could come through that door right now and snatch that Mac out your hand and take you away and you can disappear and you haven't done a thing, right? But here's what I'm saying. Stay within the law in your organizing. Organize around things that will help the community. If it's about fracking, who's destroying, that's destroying the water and your future, then organize around those things that will make the community stronger. You only need a couple people to help you. Do something that will build the community into a stronger institution. Okay, and then don't let anybody tell you and I'm not, you know, I'm not the goody-goody guy, but don't let anybody tell you throw a brick through that window. Throwing a brick through that window is not going to help you. It's just going to, you know, create some kind of problem. Instead, 
grow some food on the other side of the window or whatever, okay? Hi, um, you mentioned the shift in um, wealth in black communities, and so my question is um, whether you have any suggestions um, for more information about that, or for um, just what are your favorite sources of information apart from the Real News Network and your book? My, my source of information? What are your favorite media? It's the Real sources? News. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, and, and this is not shameless, right? There's like 12,000 stories on there about everything that you ever want to know about, and it's constant and it's current. Like the, the, the shooting uh, down in South Carolina, Today is up on the news, most likely. Uh, I hope. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, that's a source. But there's nothing you can do about the transfer of that wealth because there's something called super exploitation that's taking place among a small group of people that's fleecing everybody whites, blacks, browns, you name it. You know, unless you're part of that group, you're going to get fleeced. Hi. Mm -hmm. uh, my name's Austin. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to word this particularly well, but um, you, you were kind of talking again about, about an economic shift just within Baltimore and, and within black communities in Baltimore. And I was wondering if you think there are uh, limits in, in explaining racism in Baltimore like through economics. Well, yes. I mean, you know, I mean, if, 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 if you check the housing scandal and uh, uh, the collapse of the debt market, the, the whole thing about toxic bonds and so on, what you'll find out is the lawsuits that's been filed against Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Chase Manhattan, et cetera, will show that black people have was targeted uh, in particular, you know, uh, but the white community was targeted too in the sense that they moved black families in to change the value of the white community's property and then caused white flight and brought those houses for pennies on a dollar and took advantage of those groups also. But yes, this, this America is built on the backs of slavery. There's no way around that. Even some cases, indentured servitude, some of those slaves were white, some of them were uh, Chinese, some of America has always, as an entity, exploited populations. At some, at some point, Italians were considered black. You know, uh, uh, Swedes were considered, uh, uh, if you were a white person with blonde hair and blue eyes in the Midwest in the 1880s, you might have gotten ran out of town on the rail. You know, so racism always plays because racism allows the in-group to exploit those people that's outside of their group. And it changes its face, its relationship. But it's not about racism, it's about wealth. It's about the Robert Burns, but that's a little too far probably. Go ahead. Hi there. Yeah. Uh, my name's Nick, um, and I was wondering, um, in your memoir, you mentioned that you kind of had this um, organiza organizing gene, um, and um, I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that. What kinds of things that do you tell people, or what kinds of actions did you do in the prison system to kind of help people fight 
maybe kind of a sense of apathy that they may have had? I don't agree. I, there's no such, I, there might be an organizing degree, a gene. Uh, if you stand for what you believe in, you are already a outlaw because you should be a sheep. You should be docile. You should accept whatever is happening. If you raise your head and say that we don't want the liquid gas thing down at the code because it's detrimental, or we don't want, uh, uh, heaven forbid I should say this, chartered schools in our community because so many people are left out. If you take a position, any kind of position, then already you are an organizer and you are an outlaw. And so I, at no point, I don't think anything that I did was about organizing, it was about self-preservation. It was about uh, maintaining my humanity. Hi, my name is uh, Vincent Campbell. Um, and a lot of what it is that you're speaking about, my dad used to speak and say the exact same things to me. Um, slavery, you know, going into the 1960s, a lot of lynchings, a lot of uh, African Americans uh, having their lives lost. Um, used to always teach me um, that strength would always come in learning things. So he was a building inspector, and I'm kind of going on a sidebar. I learned a lot from him, learned how to work on cars, learned how to work on houses. I've built houses, I'm 35 now. When I was a teenager, I learned how to build houses. Um, and I actually happened to be working in Sandtown, Winchester, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, I'm actually a mentor at a school in Sandtown, Sandtown mm -hmm. Winchester, work mm -hmm. with young guys between the ages of nine mm -hmm. and right before they get to high school, so right before 13. And I'm finding that it's really difficult for me to try to keep them out of gangs on the basis of the financial difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because if you're in the inside of the city, there's a lot of competition to try to get a job, mm -hmm. but there's not training for a job. So mm -hmm. you automatically kind of get turned into getting, becoming a gang member on the basis of trying to find a way to find financial, um, uh, a way mm -hmm. to make money. Yeah. Um, I guess my question would be, how is it that we empower our young people to be able to find employment, um, find a way to be able to um, uh, move in a direction that wouldn't be associated with the regular everyday scenario that they're seeing on their, you know, on their doorstep? I, I tell you, if, if somebody had the answer to that, they would probably be able to get rich, right? Um, the, pro the problem is, between technology, automation, and cybernation, there are going to be fewer and fewer and fewer jobs. Because these robots, these computers, these systems are coming to fore, they're coming in place, they're not going to go away. Or you go into uh, a supermarket, there used to be 15 checkout counters, now there's 10 and 5 self-serve. 
you go into the auto manufacturers uh, thing, they used to take 5,000 people to make X amount of cars, and then they do it with 500 people and they make twice. So jobs, the only thing we can do is one, kind of like raise the consciousness of young people, but also it's like the farm. The farm that we, and, and there's, there's all kinds of stuff in the city that we could do that we could take advantage of. We could deconstruct some of these houses that's sitting there. You know, as a job, as a crew, as a work crew, we could train people and do that. We could grow food on some of that land. We could reconstruct some of these houses that don't need to be deconstructed, right? Uh, what we're doing with the farm, say, for instance, is we're teaching young people how to grow the food, but then we're making agreements with supermarkets and restaurants to buy the food. And the young people will get that money. So we're creating a business for them. And once that's up and fully running, we're going to move to another place. So it's not the kind of money, and, the kind, and believe it or not, the kind of money that people think is in the drug game is not there. It is not there. A few people, just like the capitalist system, making a lot of money, and everybody else down on the ground is, is risking their life for pennies. So, but we just, we have to educate, we have to teach, we have to organize, we have to find ways, uh, uh, like I say, we have journalists, we have people that's got computer or uh, 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 camera skills going down and they teaching them how to shoot, how to film, how to use that skill that doesn't, well actually it requires a college degree, but it doesn't if you get it, computer science, et cetera. And so we have to find those things and be innovative and use them and, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's a, a, we need to raise the consciousness of young people so they know that they got alternatives. But I'm glad you're working like that. Hi. Um, I'm over here. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, I was just wondering... Recently, in a class here, we had talked about mass incarceration, and mm -hmm. we had all these statistics to see um, why people were going in and, why pe and how people are coming out and how it's like this endless cycle, and you had spoken slightly about that. But very, I guess I was just wondering what it was like to see mass incarceration from the other side, as inside the prison, because mm -hmm. we have studies of sociologists of people coming out or they just went in, they just, they're about to go in or they're about to come out. And I was just wondering what it was like to see from the other side, to witness all these people coming in. Uh, well, um, I guess two things, two things. When, when I got locked up, there was 700,000 uh, people in America's prison system. Uh, today it's, you know, 2.3 million, et cetera, right? America locks up like 25% of the world's prison populations. You understand all that. Okay. It's economics. The, the whole prison industrial complex is just an extension of the military industrial complex. America has exploited the resources of the world. 
America is 5% of the world's population. It uses 25% of the resources. Europe is 5% of the world's population. It uses 25% of the world's resources. The other 90% of the planet has to make do with that 50% of the resources. The prison industrial complex is just an extension of that military industrial complex in the sense that when industry tooled up, automation, cybernation, computers, jobs disappeared. They even went to China, they went to India, they went to Mexico, they went to Bangladesh, wherever, where, Haiti, wherever it was cheap labor. The people in those areas lost their means of livelihood. In rural white communities, when the factories left, there was that hole there, unemployment. Mm -hmm. When the factories left in the urban communities, there was that hole there. What the powers to be, because this is something that you will, if you go back and look at it, it's a state decision, it's decision of lawmakers and the decision of economists, what they decided to do was they put a prison in that rural area, Hagerstown, Eastern Shore, Cumberland, and it employed the people that lost their jobs in the factory. The, uh, they became guards, they became teachers, they became maintenance men, they became counselors, they became medical service providers, they became supply logistical people. The people in the urban communities became the product put in those prisons. So both populations were maintained. One got rich and the other got jail. And from 19, the war on drugs, the war on crime, the war on poverty, the war on this and war on all of it has been a war on poor people and poor people, and this is white and black, has ended up in those in, in Native Americans and Latinos and so on, right, have ended up in those factories and people have been employed to walk around the walls and guard them. So it's an economic arrangement it's an economic arrangement that can only exist as long as you continue to dehumanize. Uh, that's why there's gang violence, because it's keeping people separated, keeping people at each other's throats, and it allows the guards to come in as saviors and protect this guy that's getting ready to get killed by those people over there, and then he's got the potential for a snitch, a potential for somebody that's going to, like, follow him around because, oh, you saved my life, and so on. The only way you can control a large number of people with a small number of people, of course, it's technology, you gotta have weapons, but you got to have that large number of people divided. And so the way to divide them is to constantly make them feel inferior, constantly turn them against each other, constantly dehumanize them. And that dehumanization thing is the thing that feeds the anger 
that explodes in our city and we don't understand. Well, I don't know if we understand it or not. But that guy up in Hagerstown that had to walk with his head down and felt abused and felt violated and felt dehumanized and felt angry and couldn't do anything about the people that were doing that to him, came back in the community and I actually bumped him. And when I bumped him, he kills me. Why? Because he's angry about what happened to him in Hagerstown and the fact that he couldn't do anything about it and he just wasn't gonna tolerate it now that he's out in the community. And worse than that, it's my fault that he's been abused and isolated and mistreated because I didn't speak up and say anything about him. I didn't come up and knock on the jail and ask what you're doing to those people. I didn't raise any voice. So um, I have threw him away. I put him under punishment. I allowed him to be abused. I allowed him to be dehumanized. And now I have the audacity to bump him. You're going to kill me. But that's the state manufacturing violence. In the same way it's taken, like, like that vote, the, the, the uh, disenfranchisement, just all part of that dehumanization thing. Taking your clothes and putting you in a uniform, dehumanization. One of the things, and I, I'll just make this short, one of the things, uh, uh, Yale or Harvard or somebody, all the way back in the 70s did a study they took a graduate class and they divided them up and it was a seven day experiment and they took and put half of them in jumpsuits, just all plain jumpsuits and they put the other half in guard uniforms, badges, shiny little medallions, et cetera, symbols of authority and of power. And in three days time, I mean, this is a class just like y'all sitting here now, everybody knew everybody, everybody was cool. They knew this was an experiment in three days time, the guards beat up three of the students that were in jumpsuits. I think on the fourth day, and, and, and you can probably find this either Yale or, or Harvard, I can't, I can't, huh? Stanford. Okay, all right, good. <laughs> you know, okay, all right, so you know what I'm saying then. The difference is uh, these were the best and the brightest. And I think one of them hung themselves or something, right? Or tried to hang themselves, and they had to tried stop to. the experiment. He knew he was getting out in three days. You know, you knew you was going to be in a classroom with those people. So that, that, that whole process of dehumanization is just really, really, really bad. And that's what the prison industrial complex is doing inside that's killing people outside that people don't look at yet and people need to look at it. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Joshua. Um, I'd like to say thank you for coming. Mm -hmm. um, it's great to see you and hear a uh, voice of the elders. Um, a lot of things you have talked about I've actually grown up with. Uh, my grandmother was one of the first uh, black women to work for social security um, back in what think what 60s 50s something like that um, and so she would tell me of 
all of what you've just gone through and told me about. Um, but my question to you is, how did you still maintain your uh, humanness, your intellect, through all that you went through, through that many years of uh, just being on that level and dealing with that many people and that many personalities? Okay, okay, I hear you. The, the only thing you own is your humanity and your intellect. The only thing you own, and that's yours. You maintain it and you develop it and you do what you need to do to keep it intact or you give it away. But that's the only thing you own. None of this stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. That's what happens when you get old, right? Uh, no, you, that's all you own. And you have to have that. And the, the thing of it is, is that if you're a whole person, when you're subjected to that kind of thing, you're going to resist it because you are a whole person. And a whole person doesn't allow that to happen. If you're not sure who you are or you're still in search of yourself, and that's what happens. Most people that get caught up in these systems start off at 13, 14, 15, 16. And they start breaking down their imagery and their self-awareness at an early age. And by the time they're 18 or 19, they're damaged. And that's something you can't allow to help. I mean, you can't allow it to happen to yourself. But the other thing, besides being whole and, own, and owning yourself, for me, and I think people all across the planet, people have reached out in small ways and large ways, postcards, letters, rallies, just say hi, all kinds of ways throughout all of those years to let me know that I was not alone. And because of the work I did, I constantly was reinforced because I would have people that would come up to me, that's adults that would say, I was part of that breakfast program. I'm glad you fed us. We were hungry. Uh, I had people come up to me, uh, a graduate at Morgan, which I, I got on the elevator and the guy said, Mr. Conway. And I'm like, yeah. You know, I, I can't remember people at all, right? You saved my life. And I'm getting ready to graduate from Morgan because of you. And I'm like, what's your name? <laughs> you know, so I mean, that, the work helps, the support helps. Um, and being who you are. Hi, right here. Okay. Hi, uh -huh. I'm Isabella. Um, I have two questions, but they're short, mm -hmm. depending on how long you answer them. So my first question is, um, your coming here was incredibly controversial, controversial because, I don't know, people were like, you're a cop killer, 
and they don't know if their tuition money should be spent in inviting you here. So could you clarify the missing details on that? And my second question is, do you believe that Obama is a puppet? Because you said that ever since he has been elected to office, the black wealth has just completely disintegrated. So do you see the value in him being a president, a black president? And also, do you think he's a puppet? So, yeah. Um, I don't think he's a puppet. I think he was put in that office to do exactly what he's doing. That's the office of the President of the United States. He's representing a certain class of people that control the wealth. Uh, he's doing that effectively. He's making whatever compromises is necessary to make that happen. Uh, the wars have expanded, not because Obama is the president, but because the wars would have expanded anyway. The prison population have grown for the same reason, the wealth transfer, et cetera. Didn't make any difference who is in that office. That's what that office does. And for anybody that expect anything other than that is uh, deceiving itself, right? Uh, the, the gay... The gay rights uh, a position is a position that America had to come to had to come to the realization that these people are here, and they are humans, and they need to be treated as such. The immigration thing is also same, because there's a tremendous amount of economic wealth being made in the South and the Midwest by immigrants, and they are needed constantly. And if you take them away, they'll the agricultural system will collapse in a lot of ways. So he's doing what he needs to do. Okay, um, no, I don't think he's a puppet. I think he works for a group of people that I wouldn't work for, but he's getting paid. Okay, um, in terms of me coming here being controversial, I think that the Black Panther Party was right in a sense that it decided that armed self-defense was part of a necessity to organize in America. Uh, little girls had been bombed in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, people had been thrown, white, black, brown, had been thrown in the river with, with motor uh, engines around their head. Uh, people had been lynched all over the country. Uh, black men and women had been shot in their driveways because of organizing. So I think we had a right to organize and to defend ourselves, and I think we would have been foolish not to. Uh, we lost a tremendous amount of people. There was a, also resistance. Uh, police uh, and police families also got hurt and injured. Uh, that's the consequences of trying to make changes in a society. And if you look at your American history, you'll see throughout American history whether it was organizing labor unions, a tremendous amount of labor organizers got killed uh, by officials. Uh, if you look at um, just, uh, you know, I, and, I, and I really don't know how to answer you because I, I was, this morning I was looking at South Charleston, South Carolina, black man running down the street because of a traffic violation, shot eight times. I don't have to justify being here. I, and my attitude is like, screw anybody that don't care. You know, I'm sorry.
Hi, my name's Gabby. Thank you for being here. Um, you meant, it sounded like in your story, the part of the reason you got involved with the Black Panther Party was because of the police brutality that you witnessed. And, um, and you even like made some comparisons between like the Ferguson movement now and like Black Lives Matter to like what kind of um, started the Black Panther movement before. And I was wondering, um, as someone who has kind of been there and lived it and kind of sees history like repeating itself, if you have like any foreshadowing for the Ferguson movement or any advice you would give to activists who are trying to reform like the institution of the police. Thank you. Well, well, you know, each, each generation has to find its own way. I, I believe in that. Um, and I think um, the Ferguson, Eric um, Garner, Tyrone West, we got a case right here in Baltimore, the, the Oscar Grant, the uh, Trayvon Martins, et cetera, and then this new guy. Um, I think that that movement will have to find its own way, just like we found our way in the early 60s, we experimented uh, with Bushes, Daishikis, uh, free speech, black student unions, uh, counterculture, anti-war, uh, whatever. At, at, at some point, we came together and decided that we needed to make some significant changes by organizing. Young people today have to do that same thing. Uh, this is for me, from my perspective as a student of history, 1960 to 63, 64, again. And young people, uh, elders can give advice, but young people will have to determine what means of struggle that they'll have. It might be taking over city councils and changing the ordinance. It might be uh, uh, organizing, uh, uh, educating, um, and uh, creating alternatives. It might be citizens patrol. I don't know. The, it, it has to be determined by the people that's going to engage and be involved, or it's not going to be theirs. Um, so, I'm, my personal thing is you know, what I was telling a young man here is whatever you do, do something to build the community. And um, I don't have a problem with hands up, don't shoot. But obviously, nobody's listening to that, especially not the people that's shooting. You know, so you need to find something else, something more constructive in terms of organizing. Okay, I didn't go too far, right? <laughs> Hi, I'm Emily. Um, I noticed in your memoir, um, you continually use the word prisoner instead of the word inmate. Um, and my question for you is whether or not that was intentional and if that relates to all that you're saying about systemic dehumanization within the prisons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's intentional. If you snatch me and put me in a cell, I am a prisoner, especially if I can't get out. I'm a prisoner. If you tell me that I'm an inmate, a ward of the state, then I have accepted that arrangement that we have a relationship. Prisoners don't have relationships with the state. 
they're held by the force of violence. If you leave, you die. So you got to stay. Anytime that you have a relationship with the state, I'm a ward of the state, the state is looking out for my well-being, then okay, I'm okay now, let me go home. That's not the reality, so it's, that's deliberate. And that's also part of the humanization thing because it makes the victim, and I'm not saying people don't belong in jail. There are some people that I would never let out. <laughs> no, I, I hate to say that because I'm going to get letters and, and stuff and mail in a minute. But there are people that have rehabilitated their self on their own that needs to be out, right? But anytime you accept the premise that this is your fault and you don't see the larger context of what happened or, or how it happened or, or, or how it plays in the general economy then you already have started dehumanizing yourself. Okay? Hi, Mr. Conway. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Misha, and I'm just so very grateful to be here tonight. Um, so you mentioned in your talk, Baltimore historically has been a very segregated city with a number of different communities, and I think historically they've been very insulated, and as you mentioned, that's still very much happening today. So my question for you is, as someone who's from a privileged community, how do you interact and start to build partnership and community with a community you're clearly not a part of? How do you gain legitimacy? How do you um, find ways to partner that, it, that are authentic and are not seen as a threat or as inauthentic attempts? Mm -hmm. Give your name to that guy over there because you can help <laughs> yes, me sir. build this library. That would be what wonderful, thing. What you do, bottom line, is you go into the communities that you Okay, if, if you're in, in a privileged position or you were resource-rich or whatever, go and help the people in the communities that need that help. One, you create bonds. Two, you help people out of their predicament. But three, you'll stop people from coming to your community and get what you have. So help, come help me build the library. I need help. Okay? And anybody else in here that want to help, Turn your name over to that guy at the table there and give us some help because we are trying the best we can to make some changes with the resources that we have. But the more people, the better off we are. Okay? Um, hi. Uh, I'm Bernardo. Um, throughout your talk and your memoir, you talk a lot about state repression, uh, and you've mentioned a lot about how that ties back to like, the distribution of wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, and my question is, do you think we can really see societal change without addressing those two things, like the state as it exists and capitalism as it exists um, first? No and no. <laughs> you you, you got to change both things, and you have to change it. And you know, in... in, in um, this was one of the things that I liked about Occupy Movement, even though I think maybe their, their strategy of actually trying to hold areas probably was wrong. I liked the fact that they were looking at another way in which to organize and not uh, the top-down, big leader, authoritarian kind of uh, Maslow's hierarchy and whatnot, or, or, you know, 
but they were organizing across. The, uh, the thing that changes systems like this, uh, governments like this, is the change in which you operate. And that's why I was saying, like, you're going to be leaders. And you change how you deal with people. Instead of dealing with people top down, deal with people across the board. You change them, you change yourself, you change the system. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things that happened, and I'll just step back in history a minute, is like in France, the French Revolution, which was like really noble until Napoleon got up in there, um, it was 10,000 little groups like this. They didn't have a whole lot of politics. They just started questioning what was going on in France. They wanted to eat bread or whatever, or there was wondering why the bread was in somebody's hair. I can't remember exactly what it was, but those little groups met and talked. And it was those little groups at some point decided that they could change the system. And it wasn't any political organization or, or large apparatus. It was little people in every area doing things. Vietnam is free right now, not because of Ho Chi Minh, but because of 10,000 little groups, artists, taxi cab drivers, street workers, uh, uh, dock workers, uh, radicals, uh, monks, etc. 10,000 little groups. And each one of them said, this could change. I need to make changes. And they eventually came together and made changes. But you got to change both of those things, right? Okay. Hi. Um, Hi. My name is Lana. Uh, you talked about your um, first experience um, dealing with the auditorium from the other school, from the um, white school. And uh, it was obviously a pivotal moment of, the of, of your education of um, inequality. And I was wondering, um, you also mentioned that the parents of your neighborhood, your parents and others, had protected the youth of those inequalities as you were growing up. And I was wondering if they hadn't protected you from those inequalities, if um, that moment would be, if those moments would be less jarring, and maybe if that jarring moment was important for you or if they did educate you earlier on those inequalities, would it be better or worse? Well, it's, it's, it's a, that's a hard call yeah. because <laughs> on the, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example and I'll just use my son. Uh, I decided early on that there wasn't a Santa Claus and that I wasn't gonna teach my son about Santa Claus but I didn't want to deprive him of having the stuff that other people in the neighborhood had during Christmas. So I would take him, and I'm making a point here, I would take him and let him get whatever he wanted within the budget, knowing that he was getting it. And that's how he grew up. His, Christ his Christmases was like that. He's a professor now up in Bowling Green his children come down on Christmas morning and see little footprints from the cookie jar and milk is gone and there's footprints from the chimney to the 
you know, so I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's probably no way of knowing what way is best. My way, I did what I thought was best for him, and he's doing what he thinks is best for his children, you know. So I don't know if we could have been protected uh, by being exposed or whether we was protected by not being exposed. Sorry. We have time for just two more questions. And I just wanted to remind everyone we've got six copies of each book left here. So before you leave, make sure you get them. Hello. Um, could you speak a little bit about solitary confinement as a punishment? Yeah, it's, um, I guess the most egregious and horrible example would be in a place in Maryland called North Branch Correctional Institute. That's the state supermax. You're put in a cell, and in front of you, there's a, a brick wall. And you don't get to come out. The, the regulation says that you're supposed to get a shower once a day for half an hour, and you're supposed to be allowed to walk once a day for half an hour. Well, the solitary confinement that they have in North Branch, which is the worst, you are not allowed out. In fact, a, a shell, if you could believe this, comes down on tracks and stop at your door. It's like a little, like the little porty potter thing. They open your door, you go in. I mean, this is really happening. I know I, I could see the look saying like, no, this can't be, it's true. You go in the shell and you get five minutes worth of water, five minutes worth of soap, five minutes worth of water, and you're back in your cell. And this little thing moves to the next cell. It's got like hoses on it, it's on tracks and whatnot. You never even get out. And then the only thing you see all day and all night is the brick wall that's right in front of you. It's a brick wall, no window, no nothing. You see that brick wall and the only human contact you have is the guards. And so you have a lot of people that's happy to, uh, happy to see the guards. It is, it's, it's very, very destructive. Uh, after months, I've seen people actually, and people joke about it, about eating flies out of the, the, the air. I've seen, I mean, you lose, a lot of people lose their sanity and their disassociation because they, they don't have any stimulation and they don't have any way of judging their behavior and they become self, they become paranoid, self-contained. So even when you put them around people, they can't adjust anymore. It's a horrible, horrible thing to do to a human being. We're social beings, you know. I mean, I, you know, I don't, you don't even do that to animals. Even in animals, they put like pairs and couples together. So it's, it's, it's really bad. And then they call it protective custody or administrative say. They have all of these euphemisms, uh, inmates, protection or whatever, you know. But it's, 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 um, it's destroying people and it's sending time bombs out in the community also. Um, <clears throat> my name is Arthur and my question for you is, 
Um, where does your motivation come from? Because lately, like, you know, analyzing theories and being in classes and like um, really exploring what a black America has been since slavery all the way until now, it just always seems like the system is always winning. The system is never really being dismantled. So what, what is really, how do you keep building libraries? How do you keep like having so much faith in the community when like systemically and like, it's nothing really is like changing. Well, if that was true, you would be picking cotton. Uh, but, but, <laughs> things are constantly changing. And those, you, if that was true, you wouldn't be allowed to go to Drew Hill Park and swim in the swimming pool, say for instance. If that was true, you would still be on the back of the bus. You getting my drift? I'm saying things are constantly changing and we're constantly making changes and people throughout history, and I'm talking all the way back to, you can go back to the, uh, uh, the village or uh, uh, Rome or Athens or wherever. People have constantly pushed and pushed and pushed for change and change have constantly occurred. It's not occurring to the rate that we want it, but it is occurring. There's more change than not. There's more positive people than not. The thing of it is, is the negative people control the resources and the negative people control the media, except for the real news, right? <laughs> right? Uh, and so you are always getting the impression that nothing changes. When things are changing all the time and you are not being informed, things are, there's constant change. But it's not just constant change, but we couldn't have did this 50, 60 years ago. You know, that protest that the sister was talking about would be jumping out the, the rafters. The police would come in and take me away. You know, uh, so there's constant change and we need to constantly make more change occur because each one of us is significant. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to thank Mr. Eddie Conway one more time. Sure, we could keep going all night, but we have to respect his time. Thanks to all of you for showing up for the series. A reminder that next week we have Tanahisi Coates, and the week after that, Michelle Alexander. Have a good night.